everybody. It's Holly Hawkins. I'm in Bethesda, Maryland today. Oh, there's Angela. Um, I just read your solidarity statement to the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition. And I was invited down here because it's Juneteenth. And this is before, you know, they made it a federal holiday the other day. Because this place in Bethesda is the scene of a serial, serial crimes. Goes back first to a plantation, I believe the crop was tobacco. They, they, they wore out the soil and turned it into a uh, place where black women were held captive to breed slaves. Unspeakable crimes. And then after slavery ended, a black community developed there until the property became too valuable for the real estate industry and they wanted to displace the black community. This started in the 1920s, proceeded over decades. So by 1960, they were building an apartment building that was beyond the reach of most people in the black community and finding bodies from the African cemetery. They'd ring a bell every time they found a body and stop construction, grab the body, move it to a ditch, cover it up, keep building. This has been going on for six decades. So I, I just spoke to Riley and I said, you know, how different is uh, the real estate industry desecrating the cemetery after displacing a community that suffered all these horrific crimes during slavery? How different are the people perpetuating that system today from the people that own those plantations? And I submit there's really not that much difference. On one level, the moral culpability of the people who do this is the same. They know they are, you know, robbing, in this case, a black community of its land base, of its homes, and of its cemetery. And, but it's deeper than that because, you know, the politicians that grant the permits, there's pollution involved here too because they buried the Africans in swampy areas that they couldn't use for crops. Um, so when they, what they're doing is digging up, it's like one of these storage facilities where you get bins and they hit the water table. So now they pump the water, which is polluted by, you know, what all went into the cemetery into a nearby stream. So, you know, that's a little environmental issue. But uh, so that continues and uh, so they're, they're building a storage facility where this cemetery was. Um, so, you know, my message to the group that rallied there, and it was, you know, a couple hundred people uh, saying, you know, we, we not only have to express our outrage at the desecration, you got to change the system or these crimes are going to continue. So they have a nice booklet. Uh, I guess you can see that this is, about the history of the place. And it's about 50 pages. And you can see there's a table of contents here. And I just outlined, you know, the different phases of what's going on. So, you know, one of their objectives is to get a, uh, a museum so people can see how this developed and not let it happen again. And I think that's a great objective. And, you know, I was honored to speak there and I did carry a message from uh, Angela, which I'm going to find on the phone while you speak, and then I'll, 
I'll read it for folks because it was nice and they they received it well. So here we go. I'll, I'll read it now. So this was Angela's message to the gathering. Celebrating Juneteenth is honoring the lives, work, and struggles of our ancestors as we imagine the future of our people. We look back to move forward in the spirit of Sankofa. May the spirits present for this gathering today bless all who attend with clarity, strength, and joy as they continue their needed work. So that's that's the only way Angela can put it. I couldn't put it that way. So I was happy to read that, share that message with them, and be there in solidarity with them. This is the second year I was out there, and uh, I'm going to continue going. This is a, a led by black community that's basically been displaced from everything, but they have a little church, the Macedonia Baptist Church, that is the base of their activities, a block from the cemetery that has now been desecrated, um, and the fight continues. So. I think that's a good way to think about Juneteenth, which, you know, the thing I always think about Juneteenth, it came that, that you know, freedom for enslaved people in Texas came two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. It was like, you know, the Confederacy was lying to the black people there for two years, got away with it. So it's an ironic holiday, I guess is what I'm saying. So anyway, that's... Uh, that's why I'm here in Maryland and the, you got a different background. So what's up, Angela? Hey, Howie, first off, thank you for reading my statement. I was hoping that they, you know, the folks in Bethesda uh, received, you know, received my love. Thank you for carrying my love from me to them. I appreciate you doing that um, and appreciate you being there in that sacred space. Uh, for folks who don't, happy Juneteenth, y'all. Like, you know, like I woke up with it this morning. It's like 500 years in, you still can't kill us. So we ain't going nowhere. We up in this piece. We're going to be in this piece. And so just celebrating the fact of 500 plus years of African and African-American resistance, celebrating the, the um, different ways that we have manifested you know that resistance and it isn't just through you know the struggles and thinking about you know living here in south carolina thinking of the stono rebellion um living not far from virginia thinking of nat turner thinking of you know all the different ways that our people resisted enslavement and also all of the ways that we were resourceful once we were quote unquote liberated, uh, which has never happened, but enslavement on paper at least ended. Thinking of the ways that we came together and formed networks to support one another through the violence that we were enduring and continue to endure at the hands of the state. And so, you know, for people who, you know, I am, I talk a lot of smack about Milwaukee and I can do that because I'm from there. Is one of the things like if you ain't from there, I'm gonna I'm check you about it. But people from Milwaukee, we talk we talk crap about it all day long. But the one thing about one thing about Milwaukee is we have always celebrated Juneteenth. Juneteenth has been a holiday that the city has celebrated forever. And so, yeah, Rob, I sure can. Um, we we sure can. Um, one, you know, is it's always. 
it was always a surprise to find that Juneteenth was not something that other places celebrated. And so to know that it is now a federal holiday where we've been like repping it like one forever is uh, it's a happy thing. And just, you know, reminding folks that our when when black people are free, we really all are free. And so just taking the moment, taking this day, you know, 365 days a year, but also taking this day and saying, you know, we are still here. We are still here. And so I'm also thinking, and I need to find the link of uh, when we had Mrs. Marsha uh, Coleman Adebayo from the Bethesda, uh, you know, the fight for Moses Cemetery, um, come and talk about, you know, where Howie is right now and talk about what they've gone through, talk about her experiences there. So um, I need to find the link. So if y'all have not, you know, anyone who has not seen that particular live stream that Howie and I did with her, I found it particularly powerful, um, extremely powerful. And um, I need to find a link for that. So I, I think I'll be digging it. But I just want y'all, you know, happy Juneteenth. And and for those of us who are African descendants, um, double celebrate because we are still here. We are still here. Hey, Rob. Yes, excellent question. Rob D. Rich. Hey, boo. Can you speak on the 13th Amendment and how it's connected to slavery? And also, what can we do about the 13th Amendment moving forward? Howie, you want to take it first? Yeah, the 13th Amendment has a loophole for slavery. Involuntary servitude if you're convicted of a crime. And that's how they got, during Jim Crow days, you know, the chain gangs. That's how they got the new Jim Crow since, you know, the civil rights movement and had mass incarceration of particularly African-Americans, but many Americans of all backgrounds. And so uh, there's a movement. In fact, legislation was introduced this week in Congress. Can't remember the sponsors, but they want to amend that. They call it the Abolition Amendment and in the 13th Amendment. So that loophole in the 13th Amendment for uh, basically enslaving people who are convicted of crimes is uh, eliminated. And also, like for folks who, if you have not seen the really excellent documentary that came out a few years ago, that um, 13th is the name of it. And it is absolutely amazing if you have not seen it, if y'all have, you know, folks who have access to Netflix and things like that, you want to watch it. It illustrates, illustrates what the damage and how deep the 13th, this loophole in the 13th Amendment, how bad it is and how far it stretches to um, the role that it plays in creating what we understand as mass incarceration or uh, like uh, Professor uh, Rodriguez, Dylan Rodriguez out in California beautifully says it, targeted incarceration. So if you have not seen 13th, you want to. Hey, Scout Trooper 164. Hey, sweetie. Do you think the loophole was invented solely because the government wanted to find any loophole as possible to force people to work for them? Absolutely. 
I think that that's part of it. I think that, you know, when you understand how capitalism works, you're not trying to lose it. Capitalism requires someone to be at the bottom. It requires the ca a, a, a caste system the way that we have in this country. Um, you need people to be forced to be the underclass. You have to keep people down there. And so the way that I personally look at the, the way that this loophole functions, if you understand how capitalism works, you're keeping your workforce in place. Okay, yeah, we liberate, we freed these people on paper, but we're not going to treat them like citizens. We're not going to have a space where they can actually you know, enjoy the benefits of this country. Let's start creating, you know, vagrancy laws. Let's start creating your, you look like a prostitute, which is something that was leveled at black women, uh, particularly like through the twenties and, and things like that. If you looked like a prostitute, look like you were working the streets or something like that, cops could come in, pop you and, you know, you're in a workhouse or you're in a situation where you are now, you're incarcerated, which of course, if you understand the system of mass incarceration, the exploitation of people who are used, you know, who are in the system, it keeps the money going. So Howie, what do you think about this? Well, it was a compromise between the radical Republicans that wanted to free the slaves and other elements more conservative that wanted to basically keep control of particularly black workers. So that's why that loophole's in there. And uh, so I would say solely because there were people opposed to it among the radical Republicans at the time, but uh, they didn't have the votes to get a 13th amendment without that in there. Oh, I'm sorry, honey. And, and the next question from Scout Trooper 164 is how did the people, in, I think it's starting to rain, how did the people in the Southern states overthrow the reconstruction governments after the Civil War? Violence, <laughs> violence, constant violence, you know, violence against communities of, uh, communities of color, my butt, black people, running black people off of their land, terrorizing black people who dare, dare to vote, the assassination of black politicians who have been elected. Um, Howie, what do you want to add to that? Well, also the radical Republicans that were allied with black folks. A lot of them poor white folks for whom the Civil War was not, you know, they didn't have a dog in that fight economically because they didn't have slaves. They were farmers. And a lot of them resented being drafted. They didn't like the plantation owners. So there was coalitions going on, but the Ku Klux Klan and similar organizations, they would terrorize white folks that allied with black folks as well as black folks. So when it came to elections, you know, the federal troops were down there and were able to enforce fair elections in many cases. And that's how you got reconstruction governments after they got rid of Andrew Johnson. Because when he was in there, he was trying to restore the old power structure. You know, he's the vice president that took over for Lincoln after Lincoln was assassinated. But then when Grant got in there, the troops were down there and they did do some enforcement, although they really didn't have enough troops to really. Um, so you got, you know, black people getting their fair and proportional share of representation 
and governments from Louisiana to South Carolina. And in the Ku Klux Klan, they were terrorists. They were, you know, terrorists. They terrorized anybody that was against what they called white supremacy. The Democratic Party slogan back then was white supremacy. They wanted to restore power to themselves under the slogan of white supremacy. And when they couldn't win elections, they would use guns and lynchings. And, you know, in a way, we're in a similar situation now because the Republican Party can't win elections, except in their own strongholds. They can't take the national government by a majority of the vote. They get a minority of the vote for the House and the Senate and the presidency in most elections. So that's why they're passing these laws, so that it's not just suppressing the black vote. It's they are changing who can count the vote. I mean, there's a lot of talk about before the people act. It doesn't address this problem because these laws are saying the elected secretary of state, the nonpartisan civil servants that administer elections can't rule on election matters. They're going to bring it in the legislature and the Republicans want to control the legislature through partisan gerrymandering and basically flip elections, steal elections. That's where we're headed. And behind them are these crazy militias. And, you know, they are no joke. They're illegal. Second Amendment says well-regulated militia. Those are government militias. That's a National Guard. We got all these private militias that ought to be outlawed and dismantled, but our authorities won't do that. So I guess what I'm saying is Reconstruction was overthrown by violence. And we're in a situation now where if we don't, you know, pay attention and, and, and get some changes now, we may have a similar situation where our, demo, our, our democratic rights or our democracy is uh, at least compromised, if not completely overthrown. And I also want to just footnote that um, with the fact that when thinking about the fact that these that the Klan was able to do the stuff that it did, this I want I want it understood that the, the, the federal government is not absolved of complicity in this. There were places where they did not step in and help. You know, they the the violence was able to go as far as it did because the federal government did not do its job in protecting black citizens. It didn't even it didn't. I mean, they up to a certain degree, a certain point during Reconstruction, there was a federal presence and it was understood that, you know, and under that, these gains were made. But once the federal government kind of stood back and said, look, we're not we're not getting in that no more. And watch this violence take hold. It went as far as it did. So I just want to also add that the North is not absolved of anything when it comes to what happened in the South. Yeah. And another thing that happened was that 1876 presidential election and the Republicans made a deal with the devil. They Democrats let them take the presidency in return for withdrawing all federal troops from the South, which gave a free hand to the Klan and these other groups to, you know, take the total power in the South. And the Republican Party, which did have a left wing, the radical Republicans, was captured by the industrial interests in the North. They wanted to do business with the cotton interests in the South. They wanted to go back to basically slavery with uh, black people working for wages or sharecroppers instead of being chattel slaves. And uh, so it was up to a third party, the Greenback Party, to challenge that. There's a great book called The Civil War's Last Campaign. 
James C. Weaver, a union general, who's better known as the candidate of the People's Party, the populist in 1892, was also the presidential candidate of the Greenback Party or Greenback Labor Party. And when they went into the South, very courageously, they insisted on uh, integrated uh, audiences and auditoriums. They had to defend their rallies with arms against the Klan. And General Weaver made a last tour of the South trying to roll back what was coming, which was Jim Crow. So that's an honorable tradition of uh, third parties on the left that uh, we should remember. But the book is called The Civil War's Last Campaign by Mark Laus. And uh, it's, it's the kind of thing you won't get in your regular history classes, but it's a great book on that campaign. And I want to suggest just really quickly also, because, hey, we talk about Juneteenth, you know, as a uh, someone who is uh, directly, I exist because of the Great Migration. You know, my people came up from Louisiana, came up from Arkansas, came up from Mississippi. You know, our path for the Great Migration was up through the middle of the country. And so we ended up in places like Chicago, and that's how my people ended up in Milwaukee. And so to to if you want to take a deeper dive into how we got there, you know, what black people were dealing with in the South, I strongly, strongly recommend Isabel Wilkerson's really, really, really excellent, very readable, very relatable book, The Warmth of Other Suns. And it's by Isabel Wil uh, Isabel Wilkerson. And um you definitely want to read it. It is firsthand accounts of people who had participated in the Great Migration and also the history that she is able to, you know, has researched and, and it's, it's absolutely amazing. And this is like one of the biggest migrations and how you can correct me if I'm wrong. One of the biggest migrations in American history and one of the least talked about is, you know, the, these these great migrations because it wasn't just one. But the fact of black folks silently many times leaving leaving the South, we voted with our feet. It was like, okay, this is the situation in the South is untenable. We're leaving. And also, you know, I think it, it goes a long way to combat this idea that the North was some sort of utopian paradise for black people. It absolutely was not. It absolutely was not. So um, I think that people need to know that. And so I really strongly recommend if you want to go further, you know, learning about the Great Migration and the conditions that people were leaving in the South, you know, that that came out of Reconstruction. You definitely want this book. Hey, Jordan. Jordan Pack. Hey, guys. Happy, Ju happy Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth, darling. I saw this in the chat. I teach in a rural district in Appalachia, predominantly white. How would you go about bringing the spirit of Juneteenth? This is a beautiful question. Bringing the spirit of Juneteenth to an elementary audience, fourth and fifth graders. First off, I just want to give so much love to all the educators that are joining us in the chat. So I just want to give y'all some love. And Howie, what do you think? I'll let you take it first. Well, I, I would try to get the kids to put themselves in the shoes of the people who were emancipated and relate, relate to it that way. Um, and 
You don't have to be black to understand, uh, you know, what enslavement is like and why it would be bad. It's something any human being ought to be able to relate to. So, you know, I would try to, you know, get them to connect emotionally. And then uh, you can study the, you know, the details of the facts of, you know, how it came about and whatnot. But in my experience, you know, and this is politics, you know, like voting, it's 90% guts and 10% brains. People vote for who they trust and who they feel is looking out for their interests and who's talking about what they're concerned about. So that's where I would I would initiate it, try to make the connection, you know, the human connection to what happened. And I'm thinking also like for rural people in a place like Appalachia, there are places in that history of resistance against being exploited by capitalists that you know poor white folks stood up so it's like just like how he said where do you draw the like in thinking about the spirit of juneteenth it's about getting free it's about not not accepting the subjugation that we are enduring under capitalism and how does that translate to people who are not black it's just like how he said where do you where can you relate and thinking about you know, folks in Appalachia and the history of resistance to capitalist exploitation that they have there. That's a perfect place to draw a parallel. That struggle, there are a lot of similarities. And so where can you draw on those similarities and find those parallels that your students don't, they don't, they can see that you don't have to be black to understand this. You don't have to be black to celebrate this. That you know what it's like as people who are not rich that um you can um that and also perfect and i've got copies of this um definitely ordering it um if you have to they get they'll send it to you i think it's, it's super cheap but um the international declaration of human rights which is our our boss just put in the chat absolutely start by teaching the international declaration of human rights universal declaration of human rights and it's these little booklets that talk about what the rights of human beings are everywhere that they are these are universal rights that this is not something that is divided by race or divided by class no matter who you are no matter where you are these are your rights as a human being existed on this planet I think that's a great idea. I love that name. Invisible hand job creator. Yes. <laughs> Should we correct folks when they say Juneteenth celebrates the abolition of slavery since slavery was never actually abolished? On paper, it was. And so I think that that is definitely something that needs to be celebrated. On paper, it actually was. When it the formal that formal declaration, that formal emancipation proclamation, as odious as it is, and it is that is a document. If y'all have not read the Emancipation Proclamation, read it and get pissed because it's insulting. However, it it legally ended slavery in this country, and that is something that slavery under that form. That is something that needs to be commemorated. It is something that needs to be celebrated. Howie, what do you think? 
Yeah, formal slavery, chattel slavery, selling human beings is formally abolished in law. Now there is human trafficking going on in different parts of the world, particularly sex slaves. So it's one thing to legally abolish, it's another thing to factually abolish it. So in the margins, and it's not such margins, you know, in different parts of the world, I think in Southeast Asia, the sex uh, slave trade is uh, pretty, pretty deep. So yeah, we're not done with that. And then you've got situations where it's not formal slavery, but it's forced labor, like children working cocoa uh, plantations in West Africa. So exploited by these, you know, in the end, big multinational cocoa corporations or chocolate corporations or their food corporations. So, yeah, it's formally abolished in law, but in practice, there's still a lot of forced labor going on. And just like you're saying, Jennifer Breyer in the chat, and you're absolutely right. And which is why I thought I was being really careful about saying it changed, changed form. They couldn't do it overtly and say, okay, this is legal. Sharecropping is absolutely a way that, you know, enslavement changed forms. Like, okay, you can't legally own a person but like you were saying, Howie, like in practice, you absolutely, you know, you can because sharecropping was slavery. It was slavery. You never, you were never, as a sharecropper, you were never able to settle up. Uh, people were exploited because a lot of folks weren't able to read and write. And people who held, you know, the, the, the papers regarding their contract with the landowners knew that and they took advantage of it. You never were able to pay up the store. You never were able to, to, to make enough so that you, you didn't have to give, you know, you didn't have to owe them for another year. It was completely intentional. And yes, you are absolutely right. It was absolutely slavery. So I was, you know, trying to be real, real careful about making sure that I qualified it, that yes, we are celebrating the ending of enslavement in this country as it existed from 1619. However, we are also aware that it has not ended in practice. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and the sharecropping uh, captured a lot of white small farmers. And in fact, that Greenback Labor Party in 1880 was a coalition, the beginnings of a coalition that became stronger with the People's Party in 1892 because White farmers were being pushed by the landowners into sharecropping situations, just like black farmers. And they were, you know, they could never pay off the man and get free. They were stuck on that land, like, you know, old time serfs in Europe. And uh, in a more, it, it goes on today. Now, corporate farming, uh, big uh, landowners, very wealthy people like Bill Gates are buying up farmland. Uh, private equity firms on Wall Street. So a lot of farmers end up, uh, they're tenant farmers. Effectively, it's not quite sharecropping, but they don't own their farms anymore. They owe the landlord and they got to give them a big cut. It becomes very hard to stay on the land. And, and they uh, have to farm what they're told to farm, not necessarily what they want to or do it in the ways that they want to. You have to grow 
crops or livestock in the way that they that you are told to do it. And that's why there's a lot of suicides among farmers and including India. I mean, there's the biggest farmers strike against this type of corporate takeover in the history of the world going on right now in India. And uh, it's it's immensely important. So this is, uh, you know, how the agrarian working classes are treated. And, you know, under corporate capitalism, it's, it's worse and worse. I'm looking at Ms. Leo's comment in the chat saying, I feel like Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens would have been, I, do you mean Ben Carson? Um, correct me in the chat if I'm wrong, but, uh, and Candace Owens would have been Confederates. No, baby, they would have had a place for Candace Owens and it wouldn't have been in the Confederacy. But that's a whole nother discussion. Hey, Eric, my homie, what is the best long-term strategy to fight for reparations? Go ahead, Howard. Well, I'm trying to think what distinguishes long-term from short-term. Because right now, we've had, you know, in the last year and a half, more movement on the reparations bill to study reparations and come up with a plan for reparations. Conyers put that in in the 80s sometime. So in 30, 40 years, we finally got hearings in Congress, um, but it's nowhere near passage. Gotta be clear on that. So uh, long-term, I think, you know, it's gotta become an issue raised in every election. And I think the way to bring it home for people that I've found when I talk about it is, yeah, this is about slavery. This is about Jim Crow. This is about de facto so-called discrimination, which wasn't so de facto because the government let it go on. It was really another form of de jure, in other words, legalized discrimination. But look at what happened to black wealth after the Great Recession. They lost, black folks lost half their wealth because their homes were stolen by these big banks. And I've talked about this, you know, some of the biggest predatory lenders and foreclosures were cabinet officials in the Trump administration, Steve Mnuchin of One West and Wilbur Ross, the king of robo signing. He, he ran service, mortgage service companies. They, they computerized the stealing of black people's homes, as well as Latinos and Asians out in California some white suckers too that got caught up in that, but uh, massive transfer of wealth. And they were not prosecuted by administration. Basically, Eric Holder, in the beginning of the second term of the Obama administration, was called before a Senate hearing. And the way the Wall Street Journal characterized it, he said, they're too big to jail. He didn't put it in that phrase, but that was the way the Wall Street Journal summarized his testimony. They let the banks get away with it. And then these racists ended up cabinet officials in the Trump administration. That happened in the last decade. Half, Merrill's half wealth in the last decade from crimes. So, you know, you don't have to go back 200 years to talk about reparations. There are crimes that need reparations and correction right now. So that's the way I, I try to get into it 
and trying to get people to relate to this. It's about making the black community whole. Uh, their wealth is what one tenth the average of the of a white family wealth, you know, and that's a legacy of generations of slavery and discrimination. So uh, it's about you know making our whole community whole by by making the black community whole. And as Angela said earlier, when the black community is free, everybody's free. So I think those are some of the approaches we can take in terms of arguing for it. Long-term strategy is to make it an issue that every candidate has to take a position on. Most districts now, they don't have to. Kind of the, the left pushed the Democratic primary a little bit, and in some districts it comes up. I just got to say on June 18th, we got to push reparations, and maybe it was the abolition amendment. In any case, uh, but that, that Bronx, Queens district of AOC is very liberal. We got to get it discussed in all the districts. Hey, Mark. Mark Robinson, good to see you both and thank you for your ongoing participation. You're welcome. The Green Platform calls for large reductions in the military budget. Since the military has a socialist structure and provides food, lodging, training on a very egalitarian basis, huh? Please comment as to repurposing the military to non-aggression goals. For instance, to provide energy, housing, water, energy, housing, and water security for U.S. citizens. It's a damn good question. Well, the military, in the sense of being a public agency, providing these basic needs for members of the military is socialistic. What's missing is democracy. You know, the military is very top down. And uh, if you give a hierarchy and a bunch of bureaucrats the power to decide, uh, you know, whether you get housing, health care, and so forth, uh, they can always decide to keep more for themselves. So you get these exploitive bureaucratic governments. So I think we got to be clear that socialism requires democracy as well as public provision. But the fact that the military does provide that for their own people gives us a good argument. But why not the rest of us? Why not the rest of the people? And uh, a lot of people in the military come out and they think, you know, I had it better when I was in because now, you know, I can't, I can't get the housing that I can afford that I had before. So, um, you know, I think there's something there to, to use in discussions about you know what a socialist society would be like. Amy! Hey, boo. Amy L. Sachs. By the way, not a question, but I'm still seeing the negative impacts of TERFs. And for people who are not familiar with what that acronym is, it is Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminists. Trying to seize the Green Party in Georgia when I talk to LGBTQ plus folks online, I'd urge other Greens to do what we can to counteract that. Um, people don't know that we are decentralized and they assume that meeting a green turf in a Facebook chat is representative of the party as a whole. And I find, yeah. And I, I, I am hoping that, <clears throat> thank you for raising that point, first off. Um, and also, I think that it's important for people to know, because I don't think a lot of people do know, the Green Party is decentralized. And just because 
a group of people in one place are are doing some stuff doesn't mean the party, entire party endorses. And in fact, our platform as a party absolutely does not endorse it. So and, and you know, discriminating against people who are on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. And so, um, yeah, don't paint us all with a broad brush and do understand that uh, things are in place as far as what I understand to um, make that situation in Georgia to get that right. Yeah, people need to understand the Green Party has been targeted by basically some right-wing self-described feminists who are in alliance with the far right, who are making the issue of you know trans people's rights an issue. And this is not just in the U.S. It's in, it's in the Europe. Uh, it's around the world. But in this country, we've had more violence, more murders of transgender people in the last year than any year since the human rights campaign started keeping that statistic. And in the last six months, the right wing has passed more anti-trans legislation than in the last decade. And so people need to be clear that, you know, the small group of Greens that are making this an issue, it's not about the Green Party, it's about this bigger right wing movement, which most Greens, you know, repudiate and will continue to do so. And I think that, you know, and our boss shared it, that um, the accreditation committee, so people know, accreditation committee is formally recommending the deaccreditation of, uh, of Georgia to the national committee. And it is coming up for a vote within the next month. So if you are a member of the Green Party, please reach out to your national committee delegates and ask them to vote yes on that when it comes to you. So that you know, we are sending the message, not just to Georgia, but to the, the parties uh, countrywide. We're we're not. This is not something we do. And if this is what you're on, you need to be something somewhere else doing it. We don't do that here. Hey, 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 baby. Are they doing a coup in Peru against socialist candidate Pedro uh, Pedro? Ca Pedro Castillo. I didn't want to sound like a Blanco saying it, but hey. <laughs> well, the far right's trying. Uh, there was exposure of uh, phone calls between one of the generals in Peru claiming he could get 10,000 mercenaries to come and overthrow the election. Uh, this was in The Intercept, I believe, yesterday. And, you know, they've got the excerpts of the phone call. Somebody leaked it, and uh, the uh, experts on you know mercenaries, like you know one of them said, if Eric Prince had Blackwater in full operation right now, he couldn't get ten thousand people down there. So the right wing is, uh, you know, making noises and basically setting themselves up to be you know purged once the new government takes power. You can't have generals there saying we're going to overthrow the election. So I think. Uh, you know, the right wing may have tried a coup, but uh, they may be uh, setting themselves up to get, you know, disempowered. We'll have to see. We need to keep an eye on it. But right now, uh, I don't think they're going to get away with it. I just want to throw this out there because I just saw it. Jenny, I love it. 
Fart versus turf. I, I think it's perfect. Just gonna say that. If y'all are in the chat and y'all are looking, you know, what Jenny Jenny flipped that acronym on its head, I think it is much more appropriate. And I will be using it from now on. So yeah, I'm, I'm I love it. Zeke, what's up, boo? Do you think Latin America is moving left? On balance, I would say yes. We got Chile where they're gonna uh, write a new constitution. Uh, they have presidential election, the candidates leading, the left one in Bolivia, Peru. Um, not in Ecuador, the left was split between the indigenous anti-extractivists and the Korea people, um, which is a whole nother discussion. And is an issue on the left, particularly in those countries that depend on extraction. Uh, it looks like Bolsonaro is in trouble and uh, Lula's coming back in Brazil. So on balance, I think, yes. Uh, AMLO, who's not the best exemplar of the left, but uh, his party, Moreno, did well in the municipal elections in Mexico. So yeah, I, I think uh, the voters are moving to the left, are voting to the left in uh, Latin America. Hey, Hector. Hector EKM. Welcome, sweetheart. What do you think about the USA reaching 300 million vaccinations? And what is your opinion on Biden's remarks yesterday? I did not catch those remarks. What do you think, Howie? I believe those remarks were about this new variant, uh, the Delta oh. variant. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but I've read some articles about it. This is very serious. It is more contagious. It is more uh, harmful, you know, the, if you get it, uh, you're likely to have a worse reaction or more likely to. Um, and then we have in this country, uh, uneven vaccinations. So in the Northeast, we're pretty close to what they call herd immunity. Uh, we're getting towards 70%, but you go in the South and the Midwest and the mountain states, there's a lot of resistance bodies public so they are now a target of the virus which can further mutate and then come back and render the vaccines we do have not as effective that's what they're worried about with this Delta vaccine and then and I tweeted about this uh, in the last couple of weeks man things have been moving fast the G7 and in the summit so I can't remember if we've had a podcast since then but anyway I, I tweeted about how the G7 promised only a billion vaccines for the rest of the world when the World Health Organization says the rest of the world needs 13 billion to get to 70% vaccination, which is the minimum to possibly suppress this virus and prevent it from continuing to spread and, and mutate into you know, new forms that the vaccines don't cover. So. Uh, that's token. And what they did was protect the patent rights of these big pharma companies. That's why they didn't say we're going to, you know, make them, uh, you know, the common property of humanity, generic production, and being rich countries are going to help get the whole world vaccinated. That's what they should have done. So I said, you know, one of my tweets said, you know, medicine should be a public good 
not a buy or die commodity. So I don't know exactly what Biden said. I think he probably called attention to the Delta variant and the fact that people better get the damn vaccinations because uh, we're in a, we're in a vulnerable situation. And it's not only the resistance, particularly mostly by Republicans in this country, it's the fact that we aren't getting this vaccine around the world to the poor countries. So, I mean, here's the thing I heard. Uh, Israel finally was gonna share 100,000 Pfizer vaccinations with the uh, West Bank uh, Arab Authority, the Palestinian Authority. And then the Palestinian Authority said, wait, these are about to expire. You keep them, we don't want them. And then said, we'll wait until September, October to get our people vaccinated. Think about that. You know, they were, they're waiting months. Million, you know, I don't know how many people are on the West Bank, but it's a few million are vulnerable. And that's the world we're living in. You know, we got vaccines and we're not getting them out to the people. So, and then the basic problem is if we don't, the vaccine mutates and becomes uh, something the vaccines don't protect against and people keep sick. It's, it's a solvable situation in the leadership of the world. You know, the Western capitalist countries uh, have the capacity and they're not doing it. If I didn't know any better, I'd say genocide. But hey, I'm going to leave that alone. I'm going to leave that alone. Jennifer, hey, Sugarfoot. Hey, Gabriella. Um, what is the most effective way to build coalition between black and brown communities? I can't speak on what the most... Uh, most effective way, I think effective ways for me has been highlighting issues. Like where do we suffer the same types of oppression? Where, where are, excuse me, are we both, our communities both negatively, excuse me, <laughs> impacted by white supremacist, white supremacy and capitalism? Because the same forces that are at work Stealing land, stealing water, you know, denying vaccinations to people, um, exploiting labor in brown countries are the same ones that are doing it to black people throughout the diaspora. And so I think it's always for me been very important to lift up the places where our oppressions intersect. <coughs> what's happening to black people, you know, a perfect example, you know, the, the stuff we did in Milwaukee with being part of Occupy the Hood and Decolonize the Hood. We were able to make the connection between the fact that, you know, the things that were happening to black, the black community in Milwaukee are the same forces that, you know, were oppressing brown communities, you know, folks from Latin, uh, Central and South America, Mexico, you know, folks in Milwaukee that were dealing with that and able to lift up those intersections that if I end this for my community, it will end it for yours as well. And so, you know, and as a black person, for me, it's always been, I don't lose any light by lighting your candle too. It doesn't take anything from me to stand up. If, I, if I'm not going to tolerate the police occupying my community like an, you know, 
like an occupying military force like they do and anybody's ever been in Milwaukee knows that. I'm not going to tolerate it for you either because it's wrong on both sides. So I think that one of the the ways that I've always looked at uh, standing up against oppression and, and building solidarity is finding the places where we intersect and lifting up the fact that the same foot on your neck is the same one on my neck. So how do we both get together and get that foot off, get up, get it off our collective necks? And class is, you're absolutely right. Of course, class for me, and I, I don't always lift them all up, but for me, just know that if I'm talking about oppression, for me, I am thinking of race, class, gender, or non, uh, all at the same time. My inter my approach when I'm talking about oppression is always intersectional. Yeah, I would add that I think the the issues around coalitions can most easily be built are the economic class issues, bread and butter issues, housing, healthcare, employment. Um, those are you know just from public opinion polling. Those are the issues that uh, black people and Latinos and other people of color. Uh, that's the top of their list when it comes to you know what they're struggling over and what. So those are the issues around which you can begin working together. And then, you know, the other forms of oppression obviously fit in there. But I think those are the ones that, uh, that's how you, you bring the coalition together uh, initially, those broad issues. Like, you know, King was trying to do with the Poor People's Campaign, multiracial coalition of the poor around a basic income, a job guarantee, a housing guarantee and healthcare for all, and good schools for all, without discrimination. Those were the, that was the Economic Bill of Rights, five points. And uh, that I still think is the core of, of where we build. And then uh, we build out from there on these other issues. And since you're talking also about coalition building, I'm also thinking about Fred Hampton. One of his, you know, one of the, the big things he did was the Rainbow Coalition. He understood bringing together the Black Panthers with the Young Lords, with the Young Patriots and saying these are the places where our oppressions intersect and we are stronger together. I think that message was powerful then and I think it's just as powerful now. Zeke, what's up, boo? Zeke Kramer. Do you support requiring vaccinations for kids over 12 to return to school? I want these babies safe. And I have, and I'm thinking of my grandchildren. You know, none of them is over 12 yet. Um, my oldest granddaughter will be 12 next year. Um, what is the best way to keep them safe? I think that, I don't know, because we, we require vaccinations for children to be able to go to school in the first place. And I am someone who does support vaccinating children against, you know, the, the same things that we were vaccinated against. When you're talking about diphtheria, you know, polio, things like that. Absolutely. And I will never back down from that. When it comes to COVID, 
I think there's a lot of variables that are in place. And the fact that we are not on top of, yeah, I am older than 35 and I am a grandmother. I'm 47. I got seven grandkids. Um, that we are not on top as how he was talking about earlier. We are not on top of this. So, and like Luker denouncer saying, the Delta variant is more contagious among minors, so it should be required. I want these babies safe. And speaking as myself, because you're asking me as myself, do I support requiring vaccinations? If it's going to keep these children safe, then yes, I do. Anything that keeps these babies safe. If it keeps them safe, then yes. Howard. Yeah, I'll go with what the doctor's scientific consensus is. And I haven't followed what they're saying about kids younger than 12. I know they're moving down in age and giving these vaccinations, but I would follow their advice unless they have good reason to think it's not proper, which I did when Trump was president because he was interfering. But I think we got, you know, we're back to looking at the evidence and providing the best recommendations they can provide based on what they know. So keep these babies. They do it, do it. If it's going to keep them safe, if it's going to keep this Delta variant from impacting children, if it is proven, you know, y'all, you know, I haven't read on it. So I can't speak with authority. And I'm also not an immunologist. But if it will keep them safe from these variants that are coming up, then you absolutely do what you need to do to keep these babies safe. Shane, what's up? Shane Coughlin. Hey, Howie, this is for you. As someone out of New York who has run in New York previously with the elections coming up for this year, do you have any thoughts, especially with so many elections coming up? Well, elections this year, the Greens, you know, we lost our ballot line. So to get on the ballot this year, Greens had to do independent nominating petitions, which are much more lengthy, more signatures than doing party petitions. So we have fewer candidates than we've had in the past. We do have some candidates around the state from New York City's council to uh, elections out in Buffalo. Um, so my thoughts on, on this year's elections, I'm kind of watching how this uh, ranked choice vote for the Democratic primary goes because uh, I think it's going to be a lot better than having a top two runoff when the top two people polling are in the high teens. So you could, if you did it the old system, a top two primary, you'd have less than a third of the people supporting the top two. And one of them could win. Whereas if you do the full ranked choice voting, uh, you'll get the most preferred candidates. So that that's something I'm watching. Um, now you say so many elections coming up, maybe you're referring to next year, 2022, when the Greens could get their ballot line back. We will have to get three times as many signatures as we did in the past to get on a ballot. That's 45,000 signatures in a six week window compared to 15,000 in the previous law. And then we have to get, instead of 50,000 votes for governor, we have to get at least 135,000 or 2%, 2% or whichever is higher. 2% is gonna be higher. 2% in the presidential race, which they added in 2020 and we lost our ballot line because we didn't get 172,000 votes. Um, the only candidates in New York Green Party have ever got over that amount was me in 2014 running for governor, 
184,000, and Ralph Nader running for president in 2000, 240,000. So we have an enormous challenge before us in the uh, New York Green Party's just starting discussions on how they're going to address this challenge. But uh, I think the bigger picture that people need to understand is the Democrats are trying to kill the Green Party. They did it here in New York. It was a bill attached to the uh, to the budget amendment or the budget resolution during the COVID pandemic when people had other things on their mind and Governor Cuomo and the Democratic Party leadership. You know, they say they're after the Working Families Party. Working Families Party always puts Cuomo on their line. It was the Greens. We got 5% in 2014. That's what Cuomo didn't like. Saying. I mean, uh, Nevada. Difficult for the Green Party to get on the ballot line. Richard Winger, Ballot Access News, in describing that law passage, said, he says it was aimed at the Green Party. And you got to understand the Democratic Party in Nevada was taken over by the so-called left, the DSA faction. And we tried to get them to speak out against this law. They would not. So it's across the board from the corporate wing to the progressives. The progressives in most cases are silent. Uh, they're not advocating these laws, but they're letting them go through. So, you know, Arkansas increased the amount of signatures. This is going on across the country. And uh, so, you know, we're just going to have to uh, not let them beat us on that and start fighting for fair ballot access. John Conyers had a, a bill he put in in the late 80s, kept it until the late 90s, that would have set a federal standard for ballot access. And uh, that's what we need because this country's off the charts. We have to get, we want to run for that Congress as an independent, thousands or tens of thousands of signatures. Or over 40,000 in Indiana. You want to run as an independent for the House of Commons in England, it's 10 signatures. You want to run for Parliament in Canada, it's 100 signatures. Parliament in New Zealand, it's two signatures. Here it's thousands or tens of thousands. So that kind of reminds me of the summit. You know, we want to scold Putin on his, uh, you know, excluding candidates from the ballot. We're in no position to, to scold him because we do it. We do it too. So, uh, the original question was, but oh, it's about New York. So anyway, yeah, we got we got to fight to get back on the ballot in New York. Yeah, I think we about to get the cane if we have not gotten the cane. So, Howie, what are your thoughts that you want to leave our people with? Well, a couple more things, you know, happened this last week that we didn't talk about. One is uh, For the People Act, which is voting rights. You know, Manchin has got together with some people. They pared it down to some very important rights. And, you know, Manchin, I guess they're going to test it next Tuesday in the Senate. Schumer's going to have them vote. And Manchin's indicated that, you know, if all the Republicans reject this, he may be open to uh, modifying the filibuster. This is really important to watch because we cannot allow these Republican uh, laws to pass in the states and suppress the vote. And even worse, uh, determine who counts the vote and certifies the vote. Because then they're just going to outright steal elections. So that's something uh, worth watching. And uh, I would say, uh, like uh, Stacey Abrams, 
it, it may not be everything in HR one or the for the People Act that the Democrats wanted. And of course, we had criticisms about the campaign finance provisions, but may not be everything. But there's a lot of good stuff that needs to pass to prevent stolen elections in the next couple of election cycles. So that's one thing. The other is watch this infrastructure debate. You know, there's now another group of Republicans <clears throat> came forward with a little bit bigger proposal. I think it's about a trillion. But the way they're going to finance it is by privatization. You know, this is, you know, Romney and Susan Collins and Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema. That is uh, a recipe for disaster. And then on the other side, Bernie Sanders is saying, well, we're going to do a $6 trillion deal by uh, reconciliation. So they don't need closure. They, they can pass up a simple majority vote. That's not happening either because he doesn't really have the Democrats. That's more for show. So I guess, you know, what I'm looking at this, I'm saying, man, the Democrats are feckless. I mean, infrastructure should be a slam dunk. But the Democrats, the right wingers in the Democratic Party want to work with the Republicans. They won't touch the Trump tax cuts. I mean, that's where you could get a lot of this money you need to build infrastructure right away. So I guess that's the other thing. Keep an eye on that. And then I, I would say the weather's open. Uh, people are out doing demonstrations. I'm still wearing my mask. But uh, I think we can go out in campus. We can do activities on the streets. And that's how we're going to build our locals. And building our locals, you know, we don't want to just be isolated people online. We want to be you know, mass-based organizations in our cities and towns that become a real power and make a difference. And I think now that the uh, COVID situation has cleared up a little bit, although we got to keep an eye on this new variant, it's time to get out there and organize. So I urge people to do that. My thing, <clears throat> I'm seeing a lot of folks uh, bringing, uh, asking about ending uh, slavery in prison. We have to close, and I think this is a fitting thing for Juneteenth, close the, the loophole in the 13th Amendment that says that people who are incarcerated can use uh, can be used for slave labor. We need to close that loophole. So anybody that is supporting that, anybody that is working on that um, is going to need our support. There are organizations, which I can't pull off the top of my head and don't have the time to find the resources and like chunk them on here real quick. But I would urge y'all to find out who's doing that work where you are, um, because there are a lot of uh, folks fighting for the rights of incarcerated people for this reason that, you know, that are that are working very hard to end not only improve uh, conditions for people who are incarcerated, but also to end uh, the use of incarcerated people as slave labor. So. Uh, I know what you were. I know what you meant, um, IAC. I know what you meant, baby. Um, I'm just like really, yeah. I'm, I'm really literal, but yeah. Um, so find out, you know, who in your particular areas is doing that work because I assure you, a whole lot of folks are, and uh, working to end the uh, enslavement of of incarcerated people. Um, and yeah. It is really warming up. So, you know, like Amy is saying, y'all stay cool. You stay hydrated. Um, happy Father's Day to anybody that is with us that that applies to. 
Um, if it, it, you know, whatever, I know situations with families are very complicated, but if you, um, this is something that applies to you, this is something that you, um, yeah, they're going to have to, in order to, to close that loophole, they will have to change, there will have to be an amendment to the constitution. Um, I think one thing also that, you know, people can do, if you have not seen Ava DuVernay's 13th, screen it. Y'all get it, stream it, screen it, invite people to watch it with you, do an online watch party so that y'all can have discussions with people who may not necessarily know about that um, and, and have discussion. And I will tell you, as, as people avoidant as I am, if y'all do that, invite me. I'll show up. So me host one? <laughs> not. But if you host one, I'll come, possibly, hopefully. No, I'm not getting a Discord channel. That's. But anyway, happy Father's Day to people that that applies to. Anybody that decides they want to host a thing about, maybe we will do it here. We'll talk about it. Um, host um something around the Thirteenth Amendment. Um, I think it needs to be done. Maybe we will do that. Um, now that you've suggested it, and also, yeah, it's hot. People are are um. Trying to live their best life right now. Cookouts are happening. I need y'all to mask up. You have these variants coming. Please, please mask up. Please continue to, to do the social distancing thing. Um, if vaccination is something that is available to you, please do that if you choose to do it. Um, if it if you can do it. Um, and just do everything that you can do that has kept you safe with us this far. Um, I want you to stay safe and, um, yeah, we will see y'all next week. And my bad behind dogs ain't coming up here. They are downstairs. They are staying downstairs. They send y'all love.